In 2009, director David Yates gave the world a darkly beautiful chapter in the saga that enchanted the world. In 2021, we get to try one of the most elusive bourbons of all. The film is Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. The whiskey is Old Forester Birthday Bourbon. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 2009 film Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. You must obey every command I give you without question. Yes, sir. You do understand what I'm saying? Should I tell you to hide, you hide. Should I tell you to run, you run. Should I tell you to abandon me and save yourself? You must do so. Your word, Harry. My word. If you've been listening since last week, you know that we go two by two with our Harry Potter movies. And so we are looking at number five and number six this season. We talked about Order of the Phoenix last week. I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. You know, and Brad, even though you came out more positively than me, I don't think it's unfair to say we were both a little let down by that movie. Yeah, Bob, I the problem is that I really love The Order of the Phoenix in book form, and it's it's really one of my favorites. But yeah, the movie was good, but not great. It felt like there was a lot of mispotential in that one. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm kind of glad. It sounds like I'm I'm slowly pulling you into my opinion here because if you listened last week, you know that I think Order of the Phoenix is actually the worst of the eight films. I mean, we'll we'll see because we still have to watch uh, number seven, which is kind of widely regarded as one of the lesser films. So maybe I'll change my tune on that. But I really just felt like, you know, David Yates didn't have his footing yet as a director. He was taking some chances in terms of how it was edited and how it was paced, and I didn't think it really paid off. And the ironic thing is that I think that this movie, The Half-Blood Prince, is perhaps the best of all of the Harry Potter movies, even better than The Prisoner of Azkaban. So I'm really excited to jump into this one. Brad, as I recall, you said that you hadn't seen this one in a long, long time. You didn't remember hardly anything about it. So you were excited to revisit this one. I don't know. What are your general first impressions of the movie? I mean, we'll talk about this more, but I think that this particular film in the you know and out of all the eight films does the best job at interweaving the seriousness of the conflict along with the beauty of the relationship between Ron Hermione and Harry that is like at the core of the series and i think a lot of the movies either dive one way or the other they go too far into the whimsical mm-hmm. part of the harry potter world or too far into the darkness And I think that this one is hands down the best balanced movie of them all. And I'll give specific examples of that later. But for now, suffice to say, I just think that whoever wrote this script did just a masterful job of interweaving this conflict with relationship. Yeah, so like all the Harry Potter movies, this was written by Steve Cloves, who helped to adapt it. And then J.K. Rowling also, you know, provided some some backstory and, and helped with the script as well. But it really does seem like this is the perfect combination of script, of director that for the first time, Brad, I don't know how else to phrase it, but this one felt like a movie for grownups. And even though the material of, you know, especially Goblet of Fire and Order of the Phoenix got very, very dark Uh, They ultimately felt like movies that were written for and paced in such a way that it was like a children's movie that dealt with very dark themes. And this one, I I noticed almost immediately the pacing is very different. There are a lot of long pauses. There's a lot of characters who just sit in silence for a while to the point where like in in the first 20 minutes of the movie, I was like, oh, is this going to be a really slow movie? And I ultimately don't think it was. But it really felt like a movie that was written for grownups that had, you know, intelligent people in mind. It, it made you do some uh, some digging on your own to, like, look in the frame and find information. And it was really the first one for me that seemed to turn that corner from 
all right, these are kids' movies that have mature themes to this is a mature movie. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And and I think it just it reflects the continuing maturity of the series as a whole. I I think if there's anything that Rowling did well with the books, which uh, there are a ton of things, but I think one of the best things that she did was step by step deepen the level of maturity needed to read the books. Like the first three books, you know, I, I would say like seven, eight, nine-year-olds can read. But by the time you hit four and five, you're starting to hit stuff that probably shouldn't read until you're a teenager. And then by the time you hit six and seven, like they can be pretty dark books that require a depth of emotional maturity to read. Um, At the very least, I think that they help children develop emotional maturity, which I think is huge. Yeah, Brad. And I think you use the perfect word, which is balance. This movie really does balance the emotional maturity required as a viewer to engage with this with, you know, I actually really loved that it had some callbacks to the earlier movies. I love that there is a Quidditch sequence in this movie because, yes, you know, like it it just seemed like for a while, like these movies are getting so dark and they're so focused on the non Hogwarts stuff that you kind of forget that we are dealing with teenagers who are still going to school and and dealing with hormones. And that was something we really appreciated about Goblet of Fire. And Order of the Phoenix just dropped all those storylines altogether, you know, mostly because they had to cram so much information into that short runtime. This one, I really love that they made space, that they made time to kind of let the characters breathe a little bit, to flesh out the characters, you know, and, and to give you as an audience that reminder that, yes, we're dealing with, like, cosmic level (laughs) wars of good and evil, but also involving teenagers. Yeah, I mean, the way that they have Harry and Ron like standing over this crowd of like first and second years at the start of the film, and then McGonagall just calls them over to do something as simple as saying, hey, like, you need to sign up for a potions class because you want to be an Auror. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, yeah, like Harry has like vocational aspirations in mm-hmm. life other, other than defeating the great dark lord of evil. It's so funny <laughs> you brought up that little like 30 second scene because as it was happening, I wrote down it is so refreshing to see Professor McGonagall again and not, yes. not just as like set decoration, you know, and from what I've read in terms of backstory, Maggie Smith was actually receiving radiation therapy for cancer during the the shooting of this movie. And so, you know, her her role is kind of limited still. But I love that they just wrote a scene for her to be kind of wisecracking, to give a little wink, and then to kind of scurry off into the rest of the movie. And it it just felt like, oh, yeah, this is the world of Harry Potter that I'm familiar with. And it almost kind of reset Order of the Phoenix in a way. And again, I don't want to throw Order of the Phoenix under the bus too much, but it this this one felt like a return to the familiar and kind of reining in the things that went wrong with number four and with number five. Bob, I feel like it's going to be hard to rein in our evaluation of this movie because we both like it so much. But I think it's about time we head on over to what I like to call Brad Explains. (laughs) What a coincidence. I also like to call it Brad Explains. This is wow. (laughs) This is America's favorite segment where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. This is not Brad's first time seeing this movie, but it is your first time seeing it in quite a while. So, Brad, you have 60 seconds on the clock to explain to our listeners the general outline of the movie Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Yeah, so in our sixth installment of this series, you see Harry, Ron, and Hermione returning to Hogwarts. Draco Malfoy has been tasked to do some dark deed, and Snape has agreed to help him with it. Harry finds himself in possession of this book that is, uh, it's a textbook, but there are tons of notes in it by this half-blood prince, and he uses it to become amazing at potions. And then throughout the movie, there's this mystery of people being cursed, of people being poisoned, that something dark is going on at Hogwarts, and Harry slowly unravels the mystery. He assumes rightly all, all the way that Draco is up to something, and by the end of it, you find out that Draco has smuggled a b- group of Death Eaters into Hogwarts, and they, spoiler alert, kill Albus Dumbledore. The the other thing going on is that Albus and Harry find out that five seconds Voldemort has separated his soul into Horcruxes, and they go on a journey to find one of them. Boom. All right. There it is. 60 seconds. Brad, I don't know where we want to steer this conversation because 
I want to talk about the filmmaking aspects. I want to talk about the performances. But I mean, let's maybe just take just a second here again to praise the story of this movie. Uh, I was reading some reviews from like hardcore Harry Potter people. And one of the reviews that I read said that in terms of filmmaking craft, this might be the best of all the Harry Potter movies. But in terms of adapting what was on the page, they think this is one of the worst. I can't speak to that because as I mentioned last week, I got so fed up with the Harry Potter book series after Order of the Phoenix that I just lost my desire to finish the series. I never read the sixth or the seventh book. And what? I know. I've, and I've never. Bob. Bob. Brad, I've never had the desire to go back and finish it either. Like uh, maybe someday. But I, I love the movies so much that it's almost like, all right, these are these are good enough for me to understand what happens. But I will say this, like. Not having that baggage from the book and whatever may or may not be true about adapting it, what really stuck out to me this time was Harry Potter works best when there is an element of a mystery that needs to be solved. Because in a lot of ways, like the bones of this plot really remind me of Chamber of Secrets. You know, there's people that certain things are happening to and like in Chamber of Secrets, when they see the uh, the basilisk and people get like, you know, frozen or whatever – People are trying to figure uh, out. Pet- petrified, Thank Robert. You. Thank you. Petrified. They're trying to figure out, like, what's going on. And by the end, you have this reveal that, you know, the horcrux that was Tom Riddle's diary is, is trying to manifest him back into existence and blah, blah, blah. It has elements of Goblet of Fire where there are, like, these tasks that Harry is going on and he has to find these artifacts and these objects that help him, you know, give him clues to the next task that's coming. And I love it when rolling introduces these little plot points that keep you interested, that keep you engaged as a viewer in that you're also trying to solve a mystery along with Harry. And I think, again, that's kind of where, for me at least, Order of the Phoenix suffers because there's not really that much of an element of a mystery there. Like you have this idea of something happening and, uh, you know, maybe there's a prophecy, but in the movie at least, it doesn't have that sort of intrigue to it. And this one really returns to form in terms of trying to bring the audience along on this quest to solve a puzzle. Well, and I think that the reason you are intrigued by the mystery and the reason it works so well is because it's interwoven with so many scenes of just Harry, Ron, and Hermione being best friends. Mm -hmm. Like, there's so many little moments, like when Hermione has a little bit of, like, foam from the butterbeer on her mouth or when when her and Ron are fighting and Harry and Harry and Hermione have like a tender, you know, friend moment where she's charmed these birds and they chase Ron and like puff into the door. Like you have so many moments like that in this film that are so important. But the beauty of the filmmaking in this is the fact that David Yates is able to take those moments and place within them the important plot points of the movie seamlessly. And like one one scene that I'm specifically thinking of is there's a cut. It's kind of a hard cut from whatever was happening previously. And you see Ron sitting on Harry's bed, right? And he has eaten all these chocolates and Harry comes in and they have a little bit of a who's on first moment. And, you know, Ron is in love with Romilda Vane. And Harry, you know, recalling back to his conversation with Hermione, realizes like, oh, Romilda must have put this love potion in these chocolates and, you know, tried to get me to fall in love with her. And so he takes he takes Ron to Professor Slughorn, who he got into a fight with earlier. And in the middle of like preparing this, you know, antidote to this love potion, he just kind of casually is like, hey, I'm really sorry about, you know, our conversation from earlier. I didn't mean to offend you. And yet in the middle of that, he uses the word Voldemort and Slughorn all of a sudden with with utter seriousness is like, do not use that name. And then they move back into the lightness of like talking with Ron, hanging out with him. And then at the end of that, they're going to celebrate, you know, hey, like, let's let's just have a little pick me up after, you know, this ordeal. And Ron gets poisoned. And like the scene doesn't end there. They they save Ron. They take him to the, the hospital wing and in the middle of like learning more about the poisoning and this dark mystery plot, you have whoever, whatever actress plays Lavender Brown come in and give the most earnest performance of her life, calling him Juan Juan. And so it's just this complete intermixing of like yeah. all the seriousness of the plot with all of the silliness of being a teenager. And that's just one scene. And he does that probably four or five times throughout this movie. 
And I just was blown away with how beautifully directed this movie was. Well, it's it's directed well, it's paced well, it's scripted well. And one of the things that stood out to me, even just going back to that scene that you're talking about, is the way that they build in releases of tension. Like they they build in like scheduled laughs into the movie. And it works really well because in some of the other movies, the humor, it can just be really awkward. Like they try it at different points where it shouldn't really be. And I feel like in this movie, they do a really good job of that. And I know that your boy Michael Gambon is probably going to receive some sort of terrible award from you later on. But I have to say, Brad, like even in that scene there, the punchline of that scene is like this awkward beat. And then Michael Gambon goes, ah, to be young and feel love's cold sting. Like it's just a really funny line, but also very earnest and very heartwarming. Like, yeah, they, they know what's going on here, too. But it's really nice that it's not just this weird mashup of darkness and teen hormones. There's there's there seems to be like a heart behind it as well. And you get that in the form of that line from Dumbledore. So, yeah, I think in many ways this is just a significant step up from what we saw in Order of the Phoenix Brad, I do want to talk about the filmmaking here, though. So we're dealing with the same director, David Yates, who will finish out the series in the next two movies. I do think this is the high point of David Yates as uh, director of these movies. But I also want to say that there is something to be said about the cinematographer here, Bruno Delbanel. And he is one of the more famous cinematographers working today. Like he's not on the level of Roger Deakins or Emmanuel Lubezki. But he's been nominated for five Oscars now. He was nominated for an Oscar for this movie, which is a huge achievement because the Oscars just did not like to reward the Harry Potter movies for some reason. But there is something that I want to mention about him. The director, Quentin Tarantino, just did an interview recently where he was talking about some obscure director that he liked from the 1970s and how when this director started off, he really didn't have a good visual sense. And then he paired up with a cinematographer. And it was very much like the uh, Orson Welles and Greg Toland thing where the director was like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing with a camera. You can set up all the shots. You can make everything look great for me. I'll direct the actors. I'm good with actors. And they formed such a great partnership because it brought a visual flair to that partnership. And I feel like David Yates in the first movie, the whole movie just seems very unfocused. And like there's not really much of an aesthetic there except dark. <laughs> it's just like, hey, what if we made everything dark? This one, like you can tell that there was a lot of thought put into each camera setup and the way the camera moves. And it's not just like splicing things together with a bunch of different angles of the same scene, but it's very deliberate camera movement. And I think that this partnership between Delbanel and Yates really allowed Yates to like work with the actors better this time around and allow Delbanel to take over the visual aspect of the movie. And I think that it's like a match made in heaven. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I love most about this movie is that there are multiple shots that could be paintings. Mm. Like right after when when Harry has taken the Felix Felicis potion and him and Slughorn and uh, Hagrid are mourning the death of Aragog, they give you a shot with the castle off to the left. You see the three of them as small figures like in the foreground. And then there's just this beautiful shot of all these mountains and a meadow. And it literally like I paused it for a second. And I think two things contributed to this. A, the quality of my TV is not great. But B, the shot just looked like it could be a painting. I literally paused it and looked at it and was like, man, this literally almost could be like an impressionist painting of Hogwarts and the death of Aragog. Mm. <laughs> like it's stunning. And so it, it really reminded me of a few of the shots from Quaron just making Hogwarts beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe this is a good time for us to segue into the acting performances in this movie, because for the most part, and I think with maybe one glaring exception, I think everyone's really good top to bottom. And I, I guess I'll start with the most controversial one, Brad. I want your take on Michael Gambon in this movie because this is kind of Dumbledore's big moment in the Harry Potter franchise. Like this is his shining hour. If you're an actor, like you you kill for this part at this point. And we all know Michael Gambon did not seem to really care that much about making Dumbledore similar to the books. I will say, regardless of what you think of his performance across the multiple movies that he's in, I think this is the best performance he gives as Dumbledore. I think he brings a layer of vulnerability to Dumbledore that you don't see 
in any of the other movies. Like, you, you, you definitely see that he is very caring and has a heart and looks out for these kids. But that scene where they're going hunting for this Horcrux and Harry has to pour the potion down Dumbledore's throat and he's just like begging Harry not to do it. And you see Dumbledore reduced to this very kind of human, limited person. It's heartbreaking. And that scene is played so, so well. Uh, I, I just want your take on on Michael Gambon because I know you don't like him. But what do you think of this performance as compared to his other ones? I think that the scene that you talked about is really well played. Um, I, I think that for the most part, once he starts drinking the potion, you see some emotion come out of him that you don't really see anywhere else in any of the films unless he's yelling about putting your name in the fire. Um, and and so I, I do kind of like him in that area. But Bob... I am not going to lie to you. I think Michael Gambon in the other movies was like overacting in a lot of different ways. It's this movie where I just realized I just think he's a bad actor. Oh, that's not. OK, well, let me ask you this, because I, I think I know the answer. Have you ever watched him in anything that's not a Harry Potter movie? No. OK, what, he's, not, he's what, not a bad actor, Brad. I like there's uh, what, yeah. what has he been in outside of this? I mean, he's been in like he's probably been in like 80 movies, Brad. Like you should look up his IMDb. I'm not saying that I'm not trying to throw you under the bus for not seeing him in anything else. I'm just saying the man is a good actor. Here's the thing, Bob. Watch this movie again and tell me if he ever speaks with a different tone of voice other than the one scene when he's drinking the potion. Okay, so he he literally never changes his cadence, his tone of voice, like whether he's cracking the joke that I I agree, like the line of the joke at the hospital is a great line. But the way he delivers it is no different than the way he delivers his speech at the start of the movie. Yeah. Which is no different than the way he talks to Harry at any point. Like the beauty of Dumbledore and Harry is that there's an actual true relationship there where Dumbledore really cares for Harry. And you don't get a single inch of that between Gambin and Harry. He doesn't ever look at him with any sense of fondness. His facial expression never changes. Like, he is so bad in this movie at showing that he cares about anything. He just feels aloof and above everything at every moment of the movie. The only time you ever feel like he might care is after he dies and McGonagall says, well, he was very fond of you, Harry. And the way that McGonagall looks at Harry, you're like, oh, she's really fond of him, too. But I'm not sure if Michael Gambon was. I hear what you're saying. I I will let the point stand. I just think that there's a difference between saying the choices that he makes in this performance to underplay it is different than saying he is a bad actor. Because I think that there is someone in this movie who is an actual bad actor. And we might as well go there now and get the gripes out of the way. I think that Bonnie Wright as Ginny Weasley is a legitimately not good actress. And... You know, you always kind of take that risk when you hire child actors for a movie. And I appreciate that for the most part, the Harry Potter franchise did not recast actors as they went on. Like most of them finish out their roles from, you know, film one to film eight if they make it that long. But as J.K. Rowling decided to kind of force the issue of Harry is going to end up with Ginny, you get this really awkward kind of, okay, I guess that Daniel Radcliffe and Bonnie Wright now have to develop chemistry. And it's not just that they have no chemistry as actors. It's that I think that her awkwardness on camera, like her discomfort with being on camera, her inability to show any range of emotions, her inability to deliver lines of dialogue in an intelligible way that doesn't require me to put subtitles on. It actually brings out the worst in the actors around her. And like if you if you watch the scene where. Harry and Ginny go uh, exploring in the room with the cabinet or whatever, and they kiss each other for the first time. That might be Daniel Radcliffe's worst scene in the whole movie, too. And you can almost feel him trying to pull the weight of the scene because she's not good. And it ultimately brings out the worst tendencies in his acting abilities as well. Brad, I just like I, I hate to say it because, again, like, you know, I think she was under 18 at this time. So we're talking about a kid. But she's just not a good actress. Bob, she is horrifically bad in this movie. <laughs> like, 
Like it, her performance is so overwhelmingly bad when she sits down and like just looks at Harry intently with like this weird stare on her face and then goes, open up. And you're like, what? Why are you what? telling him to open up? And then she like force feeds him half of this like little treacle. And then like oh Ron gosh. comes over and sits, plops down and like actually moves his face as he looks at them. And you're like, oh, he's acting. I, oh, I by it. the way, maybe the best Rupert Grint performance, because I think he's a pretty oh, lim- yeah. he's a pretty limited actor, if we're being honest. But like his ability to play the goofiness and to play the nervousness, like he knocks it out of the park in this movie. And then you sit him next to Bonnie Wright and you're like, oof. Yeah. If it's that noticeable between these two actors, thank God we don't see her interacting with, you know, Maggie Smith very much. <laughs> yeah, dude, she is she is really, really bad. Uh, can I can I bring us over to uh, my boy Danny R, though? You mean Dan- Daniel Radcliffe? Yeah, my boy. It took me a minute to piece that. I'm like, Danny R, who? <laughs> That's not a character in the movie. Yeah, let's talk Daniel Radcliffe so, for a minute. I Bob... I think that there are two horrific performances in this movie by Michael Gambon and Bonnie Wright. I don't think Daniel Radcliffe is much better in this movie. Yeah. And I I will say, I, I don't know if this is a pass or not, um, or honestly, maybe it should be a detraction, but like my boy was like heavy on drugs at this point. Mm-hmm. And it looks like he had Botox injected into his face because I don't think his face... Like, there was zero facial expression the entire movie from him. Yeah. And, like, I think that he still, like, turned in a pretty decent performance, but it was rough to watch, especially when you had Bonnie Wright, who is just a bad actress, next to him, who felt lifeless. Like, the moments where the two of them were together, it just compounded the struggles that Daniel Radcliffe was having to yeah. have her next to him. Well, and that's but I don't know. How did, like, how did you feel about Harry in this movie? Well, that's the thing is all of the main actors like so, you know, Rupert Grant, Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson are all limited actors, I would call them. And that's not to say anything like, you know, really mean against them. It's just like, you know, Daniel Radcliffe is not Daniel Day-Lewis and Emma Watson is not a Meryl Streep. Like, it's you know, that's OK. You can still be a successful actor. And have a smaller range of abilities. But I think that from movie to movie, it really does seem like with Radcliffe and Watson in particular, like you'll have a good movie, you'll have a bad movie, you'll have a good movie, you'll have a bad movie. And there's just no consistency. And I think that's one of the more interesting things, because from film five to film eight, they're working with the same director. And so it's kind of like, why is there still so much variation in the the quality of their performances? Because I also think. This is a pretty bad Emma Watson performance. I think it's one of the better Hermione movies. Like, her character has a ton to do. Say it, say it with me, Bob. Hermione. That's what I said. You said Hermione. I didn't say, <laughs> oh, I said Hermione. You just said it again. Hermione. It's not Hermione. Yeah, there's no O. How many? So- I'm going to Google it right now. <laughs> Google How it, man. How many? If there is an Bro, O. Bro, you... Yeah, yeah, there is an O, but you don't pronounce it. It's just Hermione. How many syllables in Hermione? Four <laughs> syllables. Hermione. It's not Hermione. This is the first thing it said. Okay. Film and Whiskey Nation. Hermione <laughs> or Hermione? Yeah, dude, listen to the movies. That's what they call her. They Hermione. just talk fast, bro. Hermione. It's, <laughs> it's All not right, Hermione. whatever. <laughs> I think you're I think you're exaggerating how much I'm emphasizing the O. I'm not saying her I'm, I'm not just, making I'm her just... Irish. Hermione. I'm just, it, <laughs> I'm just making an observation, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen. Let me let me make my point, man. Emma Watson as Hermione. <laughs> Hermione. I think this is one of the better Hermione movies, but I think that Emma Watson's performance is a little bit wanting, if that makes sense. Like she's required to cry a lot in this movie. And she's a really bad crier. You can just tell she's just like making a face and you're supposed to believe that she's crying, but she's she's real bad at it. And it's kind of the same thing with Daniel Radcliffe. Anytime he has to cry, it's very unconvincing. And so, yeah, I'm with you, man. Radcliffe and Watson, I feel like there are scenes where it's like, yeah, they're fine. Like they're really growing as actors. And then the next scene, it's like, oh, but there's still the glaring limitations of their abilities. 
See, I, I disagree with you a little bit. I, I don't think this is like Watson's best performance, but I actually think that this is a pretty good one. I, I think that she is able to handle like what Ron is going through, what Harry's going through, um, like the moment between her and Radcliffe that is probably one of my favorite lines from the entire series when she's in the library and she points out Ramilda Vane and she's like, well, she's in love with you. And and Harry's like, well, what's wrong with that? She goes, well, she thinks you're the chosen one. And he goes, well, I am the chosen one. And she just gives this look of disgust mm-hmm. and like whacks him on the face with her with the paper that she's holding. See that girl over there? That's Ramilda Vane. Apparently she's trying to smuggle you a love potion. Really? She's only interested in you because she thinks you're the chosen one. But I am the chosen one. Okay, sorry. Um... Like, it's moments like that that I think that Watson really shines throughout this movie. And I, for me, I actually really enjoyed her performance overall. I will say that the farther on these movies go, I just continue to be impressed with the actor that plays Draco Malfoy. Like, I think that he low-key might be the best actor of the child actors. And for so many movies, he was just, what are you going to do, putter? And, like, that was his whole, that's all he was asked to do. And then I think in, like, the third, fourth, fifth movie, he was just asked to be the sniveling coward. But when you see what they do with the character of Draco in the sixth, seventh, and eighth movies, he's he's incredibly conflicted. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He's afraid of kind of pledging his fealty or whatever to Voldemort. And you... A hundred percent buy it. Like it's a performance that shows at his heart. He's still a kid. He's still scared. He still needs someone to care for him. And I really, really, really love his performance in this movie. Well, and even the way that the director uses him when like there's this broad sweeping shot of the castle and you see Lavender Brown and Ron running off to make out. Mm -hmm. And then you just see Draco standing on his own at a balcony and you just like even from a long distance away, you see the weight on his shoulders. I, I just think that the director used Tom Felton in like just amazing ways in this movie And you still get a little bit of that bravado that, you know, he's trying to show. But overall, you kind of see the depth of him. And I'm with you, Bob. I think he gives a phenomenal performance in this movie. All right. A couple more people before we go to break. I want to talk about Jim Broadbent, who is. Yes, he's doing his debut in the Harry Potter universe here as Horace Slughorn. The thing I love about watching these established British actors and Jim Broadbent is a an absolute legend of British theater and cinema. Coming into this movie, like, it's always funny to watch them kind of get their sea legs because they either think that that this material is beneath them or that it is a parody, a self-parody, and so they play it really hammy, or some of them take it really seriously. And I think that from, from the beginning of this movie to the end, Jim Broadbent kind of covers all of those. At the beginning, when he's still trying to get Slughorn's ticks down, like he's playing it really hammy and he's kind of like he looks like he could have played like one of the hobbits in uh, in Peter Jackson's Hobbit trilogy where it's just like, oh, that one burps. You know what I mean? Um, like that's his whole character. We don't talk about the Hobbit trilogy on this podcast. Well, that just for just for the sake of comparison. But by the end of the movie where you really get into what Slughorn is hiding and what he's repressing, that's why you bring Jim Broadbent into the movie because he plays it so freaking well as a man who is apprehensive and hesitant to share his memories. I really loved it. Dude, I was just blown away by Broadbent in this movie. Like from the moment when he comes on screen and like Dumbledore pokes him and he goes, Merlin's beard to the end when he is like, Almost like sobbing as he brings, you know, this memory, this repressed memory out of his out of his mind. I just love his performance. And I will say, I feel like he's a weird mixture of like Bill Murray and Mr. Bean. He just the way he moves his face sometimes, he looks like Mr. Bean, but the way he talks sometimes, the way he looks, he looks like Bill Murray. I just love him in this movie. And I, I think he adds so much. And honestly, like in the moments when Daniel Radcliffe is struggling, I think that Jim Broadbent and Robbie Coltrane really lift Radcliffe in the in the scene where the three of them are with Aragog. It's it just pays to have good actors is, is I guess what I'm trying to say. 
And yet, like like I said before, I think that there are some people who just think I need to be as hammy as possible. You know, for every good uh, Ray Fiennes performance in this series, like I thought in Order of the Phoenix, he was so over the top. And it just kind of like makes you roll your eyes a little bit. And then from movie five to movie eight, I think that Helena Bonham Carter as Bellatrix is like comes on the screen and is just like, I am going to chew all the scenery. I am going to be over the top in everything she does. And honestly, she pulls me out of the movie a little bit, if I'm being honest. And I know that's kind of the character, but she's so hammy and so over the top that I just I'm not a fan of her performance as Bellatrix. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't popular at the time, but she almost has a bit of like an early Harley Quinn feel to her. Mm. Right. She's like blowing up the house and she's just like jumping up and down like. "Ah, Yeah. And I think the other problem is that of all these British actors and actresses, Helena Bonham Carter is one of the few that is like, I would say, pretty daggone recognizable in the American public. So, like, for me, the reason she takes me out is because I'm like, oh, yeah, there's Helena Bonham Carter. She's in she's in Sweeney Todd and she's in, you know, all these other movies that I've seen. Like, what is she doing with all these British people? Um, But as far as her performance goes, I actually think that she represents what Rowling wrote in the books perfectly. So I really love her performance. But just the fact that she's in it makes me go, oh, Helena Bonham Carter. Got it. All right, we're running super long because of our debate about the pronunciation of Hermione. I do want to say <laughs> that, that is not the only reason. I think that's the on. reason. I do want to say uh, <laughs> both flashback Tom Riddles were excellent, like the creepy kid version, and then like the manipulative teenager version. Especially Bro, the manipulative like, teenager version. Though, like those kids make you realize how bad some of the main kid actors are. Yeah, he is like horror film creepy in the in those scenes. Well, it's like, two different kids. It's two different kids. No, I I know, yeah. but like both of them, the way that they are played, it's horror film level of like skin crawlingly terrifying. The way that he plays those, that they play those scenes, and it's phenomenal. All right, Brad, it's time for us to break and try our old Forester birthday bourbon. What do you say? <laughs> Let's get to it, Bob. So today we are drinking Old Forester Birthday Bourbon. This is the 2020 release of Old Forester's Birthday Bourbon. This was something that Old Forester launched 20 years ago now. This is actually the 20th release of of this line. It has become, for lack of a better term, kind of the BTAC of Old Forester releases. It is their most sought after release every year. It's their most allocated. The smallest number of barrels are chosen to become birthday bourbon. So it's a really small blend. Uh, they, I think they retail for what? Like, uh, let's see. Retail price on these, Brad, is $129.99. Uh, they sell out instantaneously. People will camp out overnight outside of liquor stores to try to get their hands on a bottle of this. In the state of Ohio, it becomes a lottery pick. A lot of states do it like that. If you go online right now and you try to find a bottle of Old Forester Birthday 2020, what you'll find is that the absolute cheapest you can get it is $499, and about the average price that I'm seeing is uh, $999. So what we're drinking today, Brad, in one sense is $1,000 bourbon. And before we get any further, I want to say that here's how we obtained a sample. Now, Brad and I have very good relationships with a lot of distillers, and they will send us samples to review. Obviously, that's not happening with birthday bourbon. As good of a relationship as we have with Old Forester, uh, my one of my best friends, Cy Hudson, shout out to Cy. He my dude. Won, he won a lottery in Kentucky, got to buy this bottle at retail, which I think for him was actually only $99.99. And he was gracious enough to give us a sample of this. Now, we're talking one of the most sought after bourbons in the world that is now retailing for $1,000. So if it takes... A, a friend winning the lottery just for us to be able to try it, Brad, I think that gives 
our listeners some indication of how hard it is to get your hands on this stuff. Yeah, I just want to say once again, huge shout out to Sai. He is just the freaking man. He's a stellar individual and deserves all the accolades that come with giving us this whiskey. So congrats to you, Mr. Hudson. Now, I will say, because we have such a good relationship with Old Forester, like, we're we're not treating them the way that we treat Buffalo Trace when we talk about this kind of stuff. Like, this product, it makes sense why it's allocated. They only... I think this this year's batch was 90 barrels that they made, you know, a blend into. But they have a really rigorous selection process for, like, what can be birthday bourbon. So it's always going to be allocated. And the distiller cannot help what secondary prices become. Like, this is not their doing. They set it at a really reasonable rate, which, you know, to Buffalo Trace's credit, they set it at a really reasonable rate. It's just that the market for bourbon right now is is so insane that you've got these people marking it up 10 times to to flip a bottle and make a profit. And I think that's what you and I really rail against here, Brad. But with all that said, what we're drinking today, Brad, is a 98-proof bourbon made from 72% corn, 18% rye, 10% malted barley. 2020 birthday bourbon is aged for at least 10 years. So we're drinking a well-aged bourbon, albeit under 100-proof Brad, what are you picking up on the nose here? I think that uh, this aroma is really pleasant. There's some nice orange and vanilla notes that give it this kind of creamsicle aroma. Um, For me, I'm getting a little bit of a hint of like peanuts and toffee as well. Uh, It's not the best nose that I've ever had, but I would say this is a a really pleasant and enticing nose that I'm going to give it an eight and a half to. Wow, we are coming out of the gate in wildly different places. I don't know if I shared a single note with you on the nose of this, Brad. I I had to let this sit for like seven minutes before I could really give it a nose because it was so harsh and so astringent in my glass. This was insanely alcohol forward. Like I, I tried to do the nosing technique where you open your mouth a little bit too and it actually like burned my nostrils <laughs> like Ron Burgundy smelling Sex Panther by Odeon. <laughs> The the notes that I eventually got were apples and cinnamon. Like it was very strongly red delicious apple, very strongly cinnamon, and then a dark, dark cherry. Almost like when you eat like a black cherry ice cream kind of a thing. There was a little bit of creaminess to it, but it took forever to get those notes and it was insanely harsh on the nose. I'm only going to give this, Brad, a five and a half on the nose. I don't, I don't know if you uh, were actually drinking the uh, birthday bourbon here. That that is amazing to me. I was going to say I I'm, I might ask you the same question because I'm the one that got the sample, divvied it up, and gave it to you. So, <laughs> yeah, I I drank what you gave me. There you go. And uh, for me, when I get onto the taste, I, I feel like there's a lot of heavy oak notes that are present throughout. Um, there's some nice hints of caramel, vanilla, a little bit of spiciness there, like a baking spice. I think it's a decently complex taste. Um, that doesn't have as much of the nose as I would hope, um, but it's still it, it's still a solid overall palette that I'm going to give an eight out of ten to. Yeah, I'm in a vastly different place. This is really thin, like really thin, really hot, uh, extra oaky. Nothing special at all going on here, Brad. Like there actually wasn't a lot of sweetness to this. It was just alcohol and oak for me. It lacked complexity. There was no vanilla on this at all for me. Uh, towards the back end, when you go to swallow, and this will kind of taper into my finish as well, there's a lot of dark cherry, like a lot of dark, bitter cherry. It's almost like drinking like an Amaro or something. It was really interesting, but it's really bitter, really oaky, and there is like nothing else to this palette. I gave it a 6 out of 10, and that'll take me to finish, where I'm also going to only give this a 6 out of 10. The note that I took was just bitter, dark cherry. I think that the chest uh, the chest burn on the way down is nice. It warms you really well, but that's only because it's 98 proof. This just did not have much going on on the palate for me. And I will say this like up front. You know, I talked with Jackie about this last time she was on the show as well. Old Forester's expressions really run the gamut from, you know, your like $20 bottle of Ulfo all the way up to birthday bourbon. And I... Some of their flavor profile I love. I love the 1920. I absolutely loved that single barrel rye that we just tried. Old Forester 150, which we hope to get to in a few weeks here, is one of the best bourbons I've ever had in my life. But then it's like, you know, regular Old Fo, I'm not a huge fan of. And I think this reminds me so much of your regular Old Forester that it's it's just kind of disappointing to me because it's it's just I'm not really tasting a huge difference between like an Old Forester 100 and this. 
Man, that's crazy. Maybe I need to give uh, regular Old Forester a try then because I'm enjoying this quite a bit. It costs 50 um, times for, less, I can tell you that much. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, like the finish, I got like lingering flavors of caramel that are hanging out with the oak and the rye spices. Um, and then like as it just sat on my throat for a while, I felt like I got like this final little like last gasp of vanilla that I just I was really impressed by. Um, I, I'll give it an eight out of 10 on the finish as well. And as far as balance go, like I think this is a this is a solidly balanced whiskey. Nothing, n- there's no area that like blows my mind. Um, but overall, it's really solid. I'll give it a seven and a half on balance. I'm gonna give it a six and a half on balance. I think that it's pretty consistent from start to finish. It's just it's just lacking a depth. And Brad, you know, this may be kind of getting spoiled for us by that single barrel rye we had a couple weeks ago, and especially uh, by that Blanton straight from the barrel that we had last week, but. When you're getting up into this kind of echelon or tier of highly allocated, highly sought after, I mean, we've tried at least one BTAC now. You and I together have tried Pappy 15. I've tried the old Forester 150. We've had this Blanton straight from the barrel. I would say that all of those are just like markedly better than this. And just there's a there's a level of depth and complexity that this just doesn't have for me. So, yeah, I'll give it a six and a half. But this drinks like a $30 whiskey, way more than it drinks like even a $130 whiskey, let alone a $1,000 whiskey. Yeah, I mean, I will say there's no way that this bourbon is worth even $130. Um, You know, if I can jump into my value score, I I think that $130 is a hefty price tag. And, you know, this bourbon impressed me, but not at a level that deserves triple digits. So I'll give it a four out of ten on value. I I will say I can't believe that this is being marked up, you know, to quadruple digits. That's just that's that's pure insanity to me. Yeah, I mean, if you won the lottery, Brad, the the bottle lottery, and you had the option to buy this for, let's even call it a hundred dollars, right? Like, let's say that I'm sure in some states it is a hundred dollars. I'm pretty sure that's what Cy told me he paid for this. What would you give it out of ten? Like, if you had the option to buy this at a hundred. Or pass on it. What are you gonna What are you gonna do? Um, I mean, the one thirty at the one thirty price point, I gave it a four out of ten. If it was a hundred, I might give it a four and a half, maybe a five. Once again, they they kind of have you over a barrel because you even if you know that you're not gonna like love 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 it, it's like, well, I'm gonna buy it for a hundred bucks yeah. so that I can give it to my friends. Yeah, you or know, trade I, like, it I have for so many you fr- want more. Exactly, or trade it for something better. So, yeah, I, I would pay it, uh, but only because of the resale value. I'm going to give it a 3 out of 10 on value. Brad, I'm, this was just a significant bummer for me. And that's not to say that like every release of Birthday Bourbon isn't better than this. But you'll hear me rave about something when we get around to this old Forester 150. You heard me rave about the old Forester single barrel rye. I just think that this particular release is is just not doing it for me. I'm coming out to a 27 out of 50. Brad, what are you coming out to? Uh, I'm at a 36 out of 50, Bob. Nine points higher. All right. That brings us out to a 63 out of 100 or a 31.5 out of 50. Brad, do you recommend? Uh, yeah, I would recommend. If you're able to get your hands on it and, you know, not at an astronomically crazy price, like, yeah, go for it. It's good stuff. I mean, I don't think I'm going to dissuade anybody. Like, if you if you go to a bar that has a bottle of this on the shelf, you're probably going to want to try it. I don't think it's worth paying the money for, to be honest with you. So I'm I'm not going to recommend, but let's be honest here. If you see it, you're probably going to try it anyway. So that's where we're coming out on Old Forester Birthday Bourbon 2020. Once again, we want to say a huge thank you to our friend Cy Hudson for this sample. I cannot thank that man enough. But Bob, I think it's about time we get back into talking about Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Let's get to it, Brad.
right. That was Old Forester Birthday Bourbon 2020. We're getting back into talking about a movie that it seems like we both really love, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I'm not going to ruin this movie with my Bob Ruins It segment, but I do have kind of... I had a few nitpicks with this movie, most of which were cleared up for me by just Googling Harry Potter Wikipedia pages. I will say, like, I really do hate when something is kind of a plot hole, but then they kind of patch over it by saying like, yeah, well, it's magic, so whatever. It's like, okay, (laughs) it's still a plot inconsistency. Like, how how does magic work? How I say it works. Exactly. Like the way that they, in the movie, not in the book, the way that they introduce the Felix Felicis uh, potion, that's like, it'll give you perfect, like, I don't know how, how Jim Broadbent says it, but he's like, it'll make all your endeavors successful. I'm like, oh, cool, just drink that and then go murder Voldemort. Like, that seems like that would be a really easy way <laughs> to yeah. take care of that. <laughs> and then, you know, you Google it. They're like, well, it doesn't really make you successful. It just, you know, increases the likelihood of things that were already going to happen. But I'm still like, all right, well, I would still feel much more comfortable about battling Voldemort if I had a vial full of Felix Felicis to to just chug. I mean, yeah. am I wrong? No, you're not wrong at all. I literally have that thought every single time. And part of me is like, well, you have a 16-year-old kid and he's been told by his mentor, his father figure, you know, hey, this is the single most important thing to understanding how we can defeat Voldemort. And so in his mind, he goes, all right, well, I'm going to use Felix Felicis for that then sure. because my guy is saying this is the most important thing. So that that's the way that I justify it in my brain. Um, but I, I, I don't disagree with you in any way. I mean, I'm just saying like I, now, that Harry has, same thing. now that Harry has the recipe, like just just go make a couple more vials for yourself, my man. Like, yeah, well, yeah, so the, they're, I'll, I'll nitpick that. He doesn't have the recipe. He he just has the little bottle. Oh, OK. OK. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that that would be my only thing. But yeah, no, I agree with you. The problem that I have with your take, though, is simply the fact that in the book and in the movies, I think that when he takes the Felix Felicis potion, it is hands down one of my favorite scenes in all eight movies or all seven books. Like when he <laughs> when he thing. The pincers thing (laughs) when he tells Ron and Hermione, I don't know, it just seems like the place to be, you know, and they're looking at him. They're like, no, it doesn't (laughs) seem like the place to be. I just everything about Felix Felicis makes me happy. So even if it is logically uh, just illogical to take it now and not when he's going to fight Voldemort, I love it. Yeah. No, I totally agree. (laughs) My other nitpick is this. Like, okay, so. They finally get Slughorn's memories. And I do want to say, just a quick aside, the special effects when they go into people's memories and it has that like ink blotting effect that then becomes the next scene. One of the coolest special effects in all the Harry Potter franchises. Like we complained about the special effects in Order of the Phoenix. This movie has significantly better effects. But after they see Slughorn's memory and they hear Tom Riddle say the word Horcrux and then Dumbledore comes out of that memory and he goes like, my God. I had no idea. I can't believe Horcruxes. And then in the very next scene, he's like, so yeah, I've known about this Horcrux thing for a while, and I've actually already found some of them, and I think I know where another one is. And I'm like, okay, so do you know about Horcruxes or don't you? Because in the last scene, you just said like, what a shock, what a surprise. I could have never seen this coming. Things are much worse than I feared. Is it just the fact that he reveals that there's seven of them? Like, I don't know what, like, What's going on there? Because it seems super inconsistent. Yeah, I I think that the actual surprise is the fact that he has split his soul seven times. Okay. And but I agree with you 100 percent. The way he delivers the line implies that he doesn't even know that, you know, that Tom Riddle ever knew about Horcruxes until this moment. And then, like you said, two seconds later, it's like. And I've been chasing down them ever since I saw that diary. I've wondered about this. I'm like, okay, well, you already knew about the Horcruxes, bro. Like, you just didn't realize there were seven. <laughs> but I, I will say, this is one little small thing I I noticed and, like, liked that they did, is that when Tom Riddle was asking uh, Slughorn about the Horcruxes, right at the end when 
when Slughorn is like, how can you even imagine committing murder once, Tom? He fiddles with the ring on his hand, which is his father's ring, which he had gotten by killing his father, meaning that he had already created a Horcrux at the time he was talking to Slughorn. All right, so here's which is here's a question, which like, is just super cool. Even though that didn't happen in the books, I think in the books he went to kill his father after he left Hogwarts. But I, I still like that. So that's that's definitely an Easter egg because I had no idea that that was a thing. But do you have to like intentionally create a Horcrux? I guess you can't because Harry is one of the Horcruxes, and he didn't intend for that to happen. So, so then did he actually split his soul eight times? I'm confused. So I, the way that the the Horcrux magic works, as far as I know, is that you have to know that you're going to do it before you kill. And so he so the reason Harry became a Horcrux is essentially because Voldemort was preparing to make a Horcrux, his final Horcrux, by killing Harry. So like Harry's death was supposed to be the final Horcrux, but... His mom threw herself in the way, so Voldemort's magic of creating the Horcrux was done beforehand. Mom jumps in the way, dies. Harry becomes the Horcrux, which is why when he tries to go and kill Harry, it's deflected off. Well, one of the reasons. The, the main reason is his love, or the, the love that the mom has for him. All right, whatever. But, I, yeah. I Listen, I appreciate the explanation. Yeah, man. But this is where I'm like, you know... Maybe just sticking with the movies is the right move for me because, like, I my eyes glossed no, over I, a little bit. Honestly, the, the books don't explain it much more. This is genuinely just me guessing at how it works. Okay. Like, I'd imagine that they do a magical incantation to prepare the Horcrux. Then they kill the person and their soul is split. Uh, but part – I mean, part of magic – I feel like because I've read tons of fantasy, sci-fi, like all sorts of fictional works. I feel like some of the beauty of magic is not explaining it all. And it does lead to places like this where you're like, well, how do you create a Horcrux then? And it's like, I don't know, magic. And you're like, oh, OK, whatever. Uh, but But there is some beauty in not explaining every single little facet of how your magic works in your fictional world. Yeah, I get that. All right, well, now that we have gotten somehow even nerdier than we got in the last episode about this one, Brad, I think it's time for final scores. I'm going to go ahead and go first. Uh, I'm really waffling between a nine and a half and a ten, to be honest with you. I think this is the perfect Harry Potter movie. I think that even more than Prisoner of Azkaban, which, if we're being honest, might still have a little bit more like of a filmmaking craft edge on this one. Like, I think Quaron's just a better director, and and that's fine. But like you said earlier, this is the perfect marriage of content that actually matters to the overarching arc of the story and filmmaking craft. My big complaint with Prisoner of Azkaban is that in a lot of ways, that whole year could have just not happened. Like there's just they're not really dealing with anything that matters in the long run, except for like introducing Sirius Black. So it's cool to see Quaron like having fun with that world. I just wish that there was like more substance to that movie. And this one is you know, aside from, I think, the last movie, this one might actually be the one with the most substance and the most consequence. And it is paired with, you know, an Academy Award nominated cinematographer. It is paired with the director of this movie making the best one that he has done, you know, ever. I do think there's a slight pacing issues. The first 20 minutes, 30 minutes are kind of slow. You really have to get used to this new pace they're trying for here. So I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of 10. But Brad, I think this is on par with or perhaps even better as an overall movie than Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah, I, I think I'm with you, Bob. The Prisoner of Azkaban, I think, is overall a better movie, but it has some lower lows than this film. I'm thinking specifically of the shrunken heads mm. and some of the other childish elements that Quaron throws in. But for me, I, I'm going to give this movie a nine out of 10. And the reason I do is because of the trio of what I consider to be really bad performances from two incredibly important characters and then one supporting character in Bonnie Wright, Michael Gambon, and Daniel Radcliffe. I, I just think that their performances drag down what could be close to a perfect movie. Mm. Um, but even with that being said, I, I think this is a phenomenal film that I easily can give a 9 out of 10 to. All right, so if splitting hairs then, like if you're ranking Harry Potter so far, is this the best one or is it Prisoner of Azkaban? 
I think I'd leave Prisoner of Azkaban over it, partially for the ending scene. I, I, I'm realizing that Harry Potter has a lot of great endings to all the books. And like, dude, the ending scene when Harry finally casts uh, Expecto Patronum in Prisoner of Azkaban is a million times better than when Dumbledore gets killed mm. at the end of this movie. That's fair. I, I still think I'd put this as the best one while acknowledging that like what Quaron did as a filmmaker is probably better than what uh, Yates is doing here. Yeah. Well, and even the fact that he did it like five years earlier. Yeah, exactly. Because right? like that was like, what, 2004? Mm-hmm. Like CGI was so much worse between then and 2009. Like, I, like I'm still just so impressed with what Quaron did. Well, we want to know what you think about Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Is this the best one? Is it maybe the worst one to you? Please reach out and let us know your take on this movie. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Or you can leave us a voicemail. Let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast. You can do that by calling us through our website, which is anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Next week, we're actually going to be doing a programming change, which we'll explain at the beginning of that episode. But we're going to be looking at the 1999 absolute banger of a classic, The Matrix. So join us for that next week. Until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Bye.